Roots with host Mark Gerke is a podcast from Common Roots Rising. Through engaging conversations with creative leaders, we're exploring our community roots and connections as we imagine transformative new stories and culture into being. Hello and welcome to Imaginal Roots. Today we're getting to know Asa Plonsky. I met Asa through my interest in Golden Sands Resource Conservation and Development Council. Asa is a Regional Invasive Species Coordinator and leads the Cooperative Invasive Species Management Area for the Central Wisconsin Invasives Partnership. ACE's role is managing the partnership between organizations, governments, and individuals to manage invasive species. Today we're going to learn more about ASA and her connection to the natural world and her passion for plants that led her to a career in caring for the balance of nature here in central Wisconsin. Thank you for joining us, ASA. Can you tell me, where did you grow up? Um, I'm born and raised in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. So growing up, when do you first remember and recognize the connection that you had with nature? Um, I guess what I pinpoint was probably, I was like nine years old and I was going through some familial shifting, I guess, some changes in the family. And um, my dad had moved into this apartment um, and behind the apartment there were these woods. And I specifically remember going back there and finding um, Amanita muscaria mushrooms. (laughs) And uh, as a kid, those are the Mario mushrooms. So that really, got my interest going in what the heck is is out here in the woods. Wow, awesome. <laughs> so did you know that name at nine years old, what that mushroom was? No. Oh, no, my dad told me. Okay. So your dad I don't... Knew, know, knew about mushrooms, so that was helpful. Yeah, so my dad um, is a psychologist. He taught at UWSP, but he's retired now, and he taught a psychoactive drugs course. So that's why he knew Amanita muscaria. Oh, I see. I yeah. see. Okay. Well, this could be. So he's not a big nature guy, but parts of it. He He's an experiential awareness in mushrooms guy, though. <laughs> experiential awareness overall, yeah. Yeah, very cool. Wow, that's awesome. In, that's very interesting. <laughs> um, so... How that experience when you're nine years old and you discovered these mushrooms, um, how did that experience influence your journey and growth through your, your, your teenage years and, and getting out in nature and connecting with plants? I guess I, I would say that that kind of introduced me to just, the, just how much is out there, how much there is to learn, and that you know, outside in the woods and the wetlands are this place to go to get away from everything else. Um, and I, I don't know, I kind of developed that. And I, when I was younger, I'd always go out with my friends and, you know, explore. Um, and I developed more into kind of a career path with that in, in middle school and high school. I started out wanting to be a wildlife biologist um, and then I found out that it was mostly statistics, and I changed my mind. Um, <laughs> and I did, in high school, I did um, Wisconsin River Academy. It's an environmental charter school through SPASH, um, through the high school in Stevens Point. Um, and that really opened up more of the scientific side of everything. Got to get more experience in plant identification, mostly trees, um, and other kind of science side of things, learning about soils, and um, we got to do a fish survey and write our own wildlife management plan as high schoolers. Um, Yeah. So that was a lot of outside high school then, right? I mean, you got to be out. Yeah, it was one year. It was my junior year of high school, and it was the second half of the day. So you got to go out after lunch and be outside. 
you said you wanted to be a wildlife biologist and then you switched yeah. into being in, into general. Did, I believe you said, told me in an earlier conversation, you went to school for biology. Is that right? Yeah. So when I was younger, I, you know, learned about this outside stuff and um, I didn't really see, I didn't think about all the different ways that you could have a, a job in conservation and in natural resources. So I kind of latched onto the first thing I saw, which was you can study wildlife. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I kind of broadened my horizons a little more and I was thinking environmental scientist because there was an environmental science class that I took in high school. And then I got to UWSP and I came in as a biology major um, and I kind of kept mostly a botany focus. And then um, I wanted to get more of the practical natural resources, more the management side of things, because if you're just in biology, it's really open. Um, it's not very specific. And um, I wanted to go to Treehaven because I knew that that was going to be a really good opportunity to get hands on training and um, really get into the meat of like the practical applications of the, the things that I was learning. Um, so then I added on a water resources major. Okay. And why water resources? I guess I was, I'm interested in like pollution and remediating pollution. Um, and I guess I've, I'm interested in those kind of cycles the cycles of water and phosphorus and nitrogen. And I thought that that was really interesting when I learned in high school how like eutrophication and all that stuff worked. Yeah, I started college at UWSB for fisheries management a long time ago. <laughs> and I was actually talked out of it after my first year and I, I because it was like, you're not going to have a career in that uh, um, by my actual college advisor. Uh, so I switched into business and, and that worked out okay. I grew up loving fishing and being out fishing all the time. Um, over here in Wapaka County, our, our, our family had a cottage and I just grew up with around the water all the time. And I'm a Pisces too, so I guess that's probably part of it. And I thought, well, I can, you know, become a fisheries manager, but back in the 80s, they were right, telling, at least they told me, you don't want to keep going to school for that, go to school for business. Um, so now I'm get, getting to connect with you and some of the people at Golden Sands about different conservation programs. Can you tell me what attracted you to your role managing the Invasive Species Partnership with Golden Sands? Yeah, so it's funny you bring up fisheries because once I graduated college, um, I have a, I was working with my normal like college job that I actually still do on Fridays, which is grooming dogs. So I, I still do that. Love dogs. Um, but I started working as a, for fisheries for Wisconsin DNR fisheries in Wisconsin Rapids. Um, oh, wow. I had connected okay. cool. with the fisheries biologist. Well, I guess I, I bounced between Rapids and Wausau. Um, but I connected with the fisheries biologist working on a Little Plover River restoration project. Um, his name's Tim Parks. And I was working for Tim. And But they were kind of right. I, I'm not sure. I kind of agree with your advisor's um, thoughts to not maybe not pursue fisheries. Because if you're just one of the technicians, one of the like fisheries laborers, they work you really hard and they don't pay you very much. <laughs> So it was, it was kind of hard to um, deal with like the, the physical stress of the job without getting um, a lot of, you know, reimbursement, especially with all the driving between Rapids and Wausau. Yeah, I, I, I saw on your, I think it was on your Facebook page, you were, uh, maybe that was when you were doing your fisheries job, you were lifting up a, I think it was a catfish that was like as big as you, is that right? <laughs> Yeah, that's one of my favorite pictures. Yeah, that was. And it was I, a flathead. Oh, okay. And yeah, and then you had a muskie too. That was that one wasn't quite as big as you, but. <laughs> yeah, I never really felt super comfortable holding up muskies for pictures, because um, I was always afraid I was going to hurt them or they were going to 
scratch my hand. Right, 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 right. That's that's cool. But yeah, I mean, potentially, if I would have kept going to school, you, I, I could have been your boss for that. But you know, <laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, so, in so I was basic, in fisheries. Yeah, you yeah, were, and mm-hmm. and then I was uh, looking for something that was a seasonal position. Um, I wasn't exactly sure how long it was going to end. It kind of depended on how much funding they could find. Um, but I was looking around for something a little more permanent and I saw a posting for Golden Sands and I always wanted to stick around Stevens Point. Um, I know a lot of people my age kind of grow up in a place and then they want to leave the first chance they get. (laughs) And I've just never been like that. I've always really liked central Wisconsin. I've always liked Stevens Point and the community and, um, I kind of know the plants in Wisconsin really well, so if I were to move anywhere else, I'd have to learn a whole new set of plants. It'd be so hard. It would be fun, but it would be hard. Yeah. So uh, I saw this posting for Golden Sands, and I applied, and I have a lot of, I've done a lot of volunteer work with invasive species removal, um, and that kind of worked in my benefit in the application process, and here I am. I, I also noticed on um, your Instagram um, I saw um, recently for Imbolic, you made a Bridget cross. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Is that something you you celebrate regularly? Um, I guess I'm just kind of getting into that stuff. When I was in college, I joined a club called uh, Society for Ecological Restoration. And that's where I got a lot of my invasive species background. Um, there was a lot of volunteer experiences and opportunities um, and I, we would go once a year to this place called Circle Sanctuary. Have you heard of Circle? N- uh, no, I have not. Okay. They're, they're in Barneveld, so it's in the Driftless region, kind of by Madison. And they're like a pagan church, but they're not specifically pagan. They're welcoming to people of all religious backgrounds. Um, and they, it's also a nature preserve, and so... S.E.R., the Society for Ecological Restoration, would get invited there to help clear invasive species and clear brush for them to restore their prairie, and they were kind of trying to restore the savanna-type area. It was always a really good experience. They have these, it would, we'd be joining in on their volunteer weekends. I still like to go to them, although Circle hasn't been open since COVID started. And I actually got to burn a prairie there once. That was my only time burning a prairie. Um, it was at Circle. And they, I just really liked the people there, and I really liked the mentality of um, land management kind of as a religious duty. And so I, I've been to one of their festival weekends, it was Beltane, um, with uh, an ex-partner of mine. And... I still I try and go to their work weekends and um, be involved. And I guess since COVID began, I've been getting more involved in um, just observing like the equinoxes and solstices and stuff. I'm getting more interested in that. Yeah. Um, but is that the first time you ever made a, a cross out of willow, or did I mean did did you learn that at at, at uh, Circle Sanctuary? Did you just like Google and said, how can I make this? Or you, or you were just inspired by nature? I knew that Imbolc was coming up, um, partly because stuff that gets posted in Circle, on Circle's online stuff. There's another similar kind of group in Athens called Deeply Rooted. I'm, I'm in like online communities and they post stuff like this. So I knew Imbolc was coming up and I was like, how can I celebrate the season and I saw that that was a thing that people do, and I love crafts. So I went snowshoeing out at Dewey Marsh, and I clipped myself some willow, and then I Pinterested it. <laughs> cool. Well, I thought it looked pretty cool, and I was like, "There's, there's." I'm curious about this story. <laughs> so here at, at Loving Awareness Sanctuary, we're we're over here between um, Wapak and Scandinavia, about. Um, half hour from Stevens Point. And we do some of the celebration stuff as well. And and really what we're talking about is following the cycles of light. 
So Imbolc is midwinter, or the halfway point between winter and spring. Winter, of course, is the, the least amount of light. Spring is the spring equinox um, is, is the balance of, of, of light in the sky. So what can we humans learn about our rhythms and our patterns in life through the cycles of light and the cycles of plant life, from your perspective? I don't think I've really connected the plant cycles to the light cycles very deeply. I have been trying to connect my own activities and my own mentalities and everything with the light cycles a little more. Um, I don't know. Plants to me are always so separate because every plant, all the plants are so different. They're all connected to following the light. I also see your your Instagram is just full of uh, plant information, but there, they all all these plants depend on the sunlight and the photosynthesis that happens, and and that's all part of the light cycles. So it, it's it's a I don't know I think it's a really cool way to look at our relationship with plants with our relationship with with the sun and and the, and well and the moon too for that matter because actually there's planting cycles with the moon and how light it is at full moon we, we live out here very rarely we have no lights around us it is beautiful out here when it's super dark and there's no moon and when it's a full moon you can just see everywhere in the woods and and uh, that also affects our, our what grows i do think i mean there's there are parallels between us and plants and all this other life with winter being this dormant season and reminding ourselves that we can just relax and we can just take a break and not do anything. And how a lot of the, like, I guess the pagan views tend to be centered around fertility and springtime is all about this fertility and stuff. And um, being someone who's not, who doesn't have kids and isn't, like, trying to do that, (laughs) um, I've been trying to frame it in, like, fertility of action and fertility of, you you don't have to be fertile as in making new life. You can be making something else. You could be making a spoon. You could be making clothing. Um, And, but... I don't know if I can necessarily tie myself to it that well because winter is supposed to be this dormant time um, and I have been making so many things. <laughs> I'm not dormant at all. I understand. And, and most of the human world doesn't really f- uh, you know, flow along with that. And you, f- you have bursts of, of creativity, which I'm certainly having right now. So I mentioned this just a few minutes ago. Um, I also saw on your Instagram, you, your Instagram is full of plant information and plant identification and insects and along with some other interesting things. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey for you going out and photographing and identifying and, and exploring and sharing that you do? Yeah, uh, I started with Instagram and wanted to make kind of this curated experience of natural areas and botany and all this stuff. Uh, and I, I found there's like a really supportive and interactive community. I mean, I'm sure there is for everything on the internet, but um, on Instagram, like Wisconsin botanists, um, I guess not even just Wisconsin, just the plant community is really great. And there's so many people who are just interested in learning and interested in sharing what they know. Um, so I think it's it's a nice way to push me to go outside on times that I don't want to, um, to take pictures and keep my account active because I'm 25 and this is what millennials do. Uh, <laughs> but I have, I've met nice, really great people on there and made connections with people Um, who live in different parts of Wisconsin and just different parts of the United States um, from all different backgrounds who are just interested in um, natural world and phenology and stuff like that. Sure. 
and and I'll share Asa's Instagram in the show notes if that's okay with you. Yeah, that's okay. Or you can just tell him what to go follow. Oh, it's Ace of Disgrace. Ace of Disgrace on Instagram. <laughs> um, there really is a, 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 a really interesting amount of plant information. Um, you don't just you're not just taking pretty flower pictures. You are you know exploring and it's a little deeper dive than somebody that maybe hasn't been had some training. So um, you know I, I was going to say that I appreciate when I I've looked at your Instagram that I'm learning something as well <laughs> and not just looking at pictures. So that's what I want to see when I look at other people's Instagrams. I get really bored when there's just pictures. So I guess if it's just pictures of art, I usually don't get bored. Um, but anybody who has plant stuff for bug stuff, even if it just has what the thing is, if it, even if it has the Latin name, well, I'm trying not to use the word Latin name, uh, botanical name, if it just has the botanical name, I still appreciate it a little more because I don't like when people just post a picture without even saying what it is. But if somebody has some fun little fact about it or some story about how they went over there and found it, um, I always find that more interesting. And I want to make it approachable. I want to, just like if I were taking somebody out into the woods on a walk and they don't know that much about plants, I like to point out things and kind of tie things back so that they'll actually be interested and maybe the next time they see that plant, they'll notice it. So you take people out on plant walks? Can you tell me about that? I guess not not specifically. I don't know. When I have friends or whatever. But you, is that something that you like to do? Yeah. And if I guess if I, I could find more people who wanted to go on plant walks, and specifically people who know a lot about plants, or, uh, ooh, I need birding friends because I don't know that much about birds. Um, so if I could find somebody who wants to come out and teach me bird calls while we're in the woods. That would be great. I, I think it would be great if you wanted to do plant walks and invite people along as, as the weather gets a little warmer. Um, it, um, it is something that we want to do here on, on our 18 acres. We're slowly developing an, an herb farm and nature sanctuary. And and I can tell you that, um, you know, I've I think I've been identified like over 50 edible plants on our land. I mean, some of them don't taste so good, but they're edible, you know. And and the process that I've undertaken is to just wander around and pay attention to something that's unique and different from the plant that's next to it and what 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 is different about this one that's different about that one. And, and, and uh, you know, taking pictures and then just looking at, okay, what is this? And... Is this a plant that I um, want more of, <laughs> or can I eat this, or or what's happening with this plant, or is this good for you know the wildlife? Um, it, it, it's it's been for me, it's been really good to. Uh, I've been on our land here in Wapaka County for just over four years, and it's been really good to take that approach to walking around and develop a relationship with my land and with the plants. So, yeah, I would, I would, you're welcome to come for a plant walk here if you want to organize some of those um, around Stevens Point um, that we could let people know about. I think that would be uh, really fun to um, take in the natural world through the awareness of somebody who knows a little bit more about plants than the average person so is that something you're interested in yeah that sounds pretty fun and i think i don't know a lot of times i go out with like my boyfriend and he is looking for spiders and i'm looking for plants and so he doesn't really want to hear me talk about well What he really doesn't like to hear is when we're in a place with a bunch of buckthorn. And then I'm like, oh, there's so much buckthorn. He doesn't like to hear that. He likes it a little more when I'm excited and happy about the plants. You're out there walking around identifying plants and, you know, finding buckthorn. And you're like, oh, there's too much of this. So this whole idea of invasive species gets into this balance of nature. 
So what does balance of nature mean to you? Um, I think it, people put more faith in it than I do. I don't know. I place higher value, and I know that I probably shouldn't because all natural areas are great, but in my mind, I'm always putting higher value on areas that are more diverse and areas that I see um, plants that aren't everywhere, areas with more rare species um, or uncommon species. Um, and invasive species, when they come in, uh, it kind of shows that this balance of nature that people talk about is upset. Um, but in my mind, I don't know, in some ways there is a balance because a natural area is going to keep providing some of the things that it's always provided. If there's plants, the, the natural area is going to keep these same processes of soil formation, these processes of nutrient cycling. It's going to keep making oxygen as long as there's plants, and it's going to keep providing for wildlife. But in areas that are higher quality, as I like to say, like a high-quality woodland, um, they're going to be supporting more species, and they're going to be supporting them in a way that they would have before white people came and built parking lots everywhere. So that's kind of how I see the balance of nature. I see it as something that's fragile if you're looking for the best thing, the best kind of environment and the best system that's functioning really well. Um, but even in these super degraded places, even in that little strip of, of, you know, grass between the road and the sidewalk, that's still nature. And it's still going through all the same processes that are happening in that awesome state natural area that you visited last weekend or whatever. And it's still providing for wildlife, but not necessarily the same wildlife. What happens with in invasives, if I understand right, they're species that maybe that aren't part of that original ecosystem and they don't necessarily have any natural competitors and they start growing and they, and they, and they take over and they outcompete and then this diversity starts going away. So that's with this with this role with the Central Wisconsin Invasives Partnership, I mean that's pretty much you're trying to like balance that and and you know keep. I, I mean the focus is on invasives, but it's really on also it's on what do you really want and what's native and and what are the what are the beautiful wonderful diverse plants that we want to make sure we have in abundance instead of buckthorn or barberry or um, knapweed or something like that that's that's taking over like parts of central Wisconsin. So can you share more about that? Yeah, so you're right. Um, the way that you were defining invasive plants, they have to fulfill two criteria to be considered invasive. They have to be not from that area um, and they have to be causing some kind of problem. So I like to bring up examples of things that I don't consider invasive. So uh, poison ivy is one plant that people sometimes call invasive, but it's been here forever um, as it was here um, in Wisconsin well before um, any of my ancestors showed up. So it's still valuable because it uh, co-evolved with the wildlife and the insects and everything that are here. So it still provides in that way, although it's still a pain to deal with and if it were on my property in certain areas, if I had a property, I would probably pull it out. Um, and then I also like to bring up something like uh, hydrangeas, which are not native to the area, but they don't spread and they don't cause a problem, really. So it's that's not invasive either. But with invasive species, sometimes they invade areas that are really nice. Um, and really diverse. And other times, this I see this more frequently, invasive species uh, kind of become populated in areas that are already experiencing some other problems. So they're kind of a symptom of other issues. 
So if like a farm field that was plowed for years and years and years, and then it just gets left there because all that soil is dug up, uh, invasive plants will usually germinate right there. Um, so a lot of times it's, it's this symptom of a bigger issue, but most people who have property want to see it um, in its best possible shape and people want to steward their property and leave it in better shape um, and healthier for generations that come after them. So if you have like a disturbed property in whatever way or a property with any kind of problems um, and you're trying to improve the land and even not just for future generations but for now if you're trying to improve your property for deer and you want to attract more wildlife and more birds to your bird feeder and stuff like that um, controlling invasive plants can be a really good thing to do because invasive species uh, because they didn't co-evolve with the insects and the other plants and wildlife in the area the biggest problem that seem that people seem to be um, noticing more now is that bugs won't eat them and bugs are this huge super important base of an entire food web and specifically one of the the major ones is uh, butterflies and moths um, caterpillars tend to be really really specific with what plants they can eat and what plants they can't eat so monarchs are like the big one now that everybody's concerned about monarchs is because the caterpillars can only eat milkweed and this is super common in, in the Lepidopterans, which is moths and butterflies, is that usually their larvae can only eat one or two plants or maybe just one family of plants. Um, and when you have invasive species invade and they're outcompeting that plant, um, and there's no other caterpillar that's going to eat it because nobody brought a caterpillar over from, from Asia or from Europe or wherever this plant is from. And even if they did which sometimes it does happen. There's this biocontrol thing that can be good. Um, but even if they brought over all those, some of the insects, the birds here and the wildlife here might not be used to eating that bug. So it might not even work out in that way. What, what you're really doing with managing invasive species is you are, you, you, it's more than just, Let's tear out the buckthorn and the barberry, and and um, it, it's like looking at what you, what you want to have in the in the in, in the ecosystem and, and the uh, um, the uh, native plants that work with the insects that support the insect population that support the birds that you want. So so you, you, yeah, you're doing more than just pulling plants out of the ground right you're like looking at this whole like web of life around the your well you're focused in central wisconsin but um and how um how you're creating like homes and habitat for the things you want right yeah so it's not we're not just pulling out buckthorn because just because we hate it just because we don't like how it looks or just because we have this vendetta it's really part of a larger land management, you know, this idea of managing the land and trying to make it, in a lot of ways, it's trying to make it more similar to its pre-disturbed condition. And in other ways, it's just like, oh, I hunt deer and I want to make sure that my property has these plants that are going to feed the deer and have all these things that the deer are going to like. So I guess every landowner has kind of these different objectives and different priorities, but I'm always trying to work with them to figure out what's important and what we can do or what they can do to move towards those goals. So do you work with, do you also work with like planting and seeding native plants? Is that something that's a part of what you do? Yeah, we haven't gotten into that much with the direct, um, invasive species work that I've been doing. Um, I've been working, a lot of it's been like in woodlands where I can see the oak tree above me. So I would hope that some of its acorns would germinate. Um, but we do work with uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service and their Partners for Fish and Wildlife program. Uh, we kind of, we have a partnership with like kind of sharing some grant funding and connecting landowners to 
funds to help them restore habitat for the federally endangered Carner blue butterfly. And just like a lot of other butterflies, their caterpillar only eats one plant, it eats wild lupin. Um, and so this butterfly's native range, it's, I think it's in some of the northeast states, like maybe like New Hampshire area, New York, um, but central Wisconsin is a big hotbed. Um, and I think Nasita National Wildlife Refuge has the largest population. Um, but the Partners for Fish and Wildlife helps us, and we work all work together, and we get um, certain areas that landowners, private landowners, want to get involved in this program and get restored for carners. Um, a lot of it is invasive species treatment and specifically spotted knapweed, which likes to live in the same kind of areas as lupin, as wild lupin, the, the plant that the carners need. Um, it's like sandy prairies and sandy barrens. So like prairies where there's n either no trees or just a few trees. And most of the time these trees will be um, like pine trees, like jack pine. A lot of times there's jack pine um, or like oaks sometimes, but it tends to be a little dry for that. But we work with, we all get together and we, a lot of times it's invasive species treatment for the spotted knapweed. And then there's usually some intensive seeding that goes into those projects. And it's seeding wild lupin, yes, because the carners need that. And the projects are specifically aimed at carners. But it's also seeding other uh, nectar sources for the adult butterflies and just other structural components that should be in this kind of system, this kind of prairie or barren system. So grasses too. Sure, sure. Yeah, I have um, uh, started a little lupin plots of, uh, here on my property. I have, uh, I got a, I think it was three years ago, I got a quarter pound of lupin seed. And um, two years ago, I thought nothing happened. It wasn't, I didn't see a single plant. And then this past spring, I saw plants, and, and I think I had maybe 15 or 20 plants, so I was really hey. happy with that. And um, so then I collected the seeds this fall, or, or it was late summer, actually, when I collected those, and I scattered some more. So I'm hoping that they come back and spread, and we do have, we have seen um, a few carners here on our property. So Awesome. Let's, let's like, dream a little bit together. <clears throat> Let's be aspirational for the future. In the landscape of your mind, what does a more beautiful landscape in nature look like to you? I see more diverse habitats. So I want, I want prairies, which a lot of focus ends up on prairies because they're a kind of land management intensive habitat because you have to maintain it. You can't just like leave a prairie. It's not going to stay a prairie um, unless you graze it or burn it or manage brush on it somehow. So I want prairies. I want forests. I want wetlands. But I also want large enough pieces of all of these so that there's um, like the climax community. Like I want old growth forest in the middle. I don't want just little patches of forest. And I want landowners who appreciate these different habitat types on their property um, and not just appreciating it for their priorities, but also appreciating it on a larger scale, appreciating it for what it does for Wisconsin, what it does for the United States, what it does for all these animals and plants that are living here, not just on your property. And I'd want to see landowners who care about what's growing and what's living on their property and do what they can to improve it. Um, again, both for their priorities on a larger scale for everybody. And even people who don't own land. Um, I really like seeing when people are interested in the public properties that they recreate on. Um, and it would be great to see those people taking a more active role in um, helping out and, and managing these properties. And I know a lot of that is having a framework there because you can't just go out to, you know, your DNR wildlife area and put herbicide on stuff. 
You can probably pull stuff out. I wouldn't officially say that you can, but I don't think anybody's going to complain if you're pulling garlic mustard in a wildlife area or state park or county park or whatever. I have been known to do that. And I was going to say, and you could take that home and make pesto with it if you really wanted to. We, 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 we would have an abundance of pesto in the world if everybody went out and harvested garlic mustard in the spring before it went to seed. Yeah, and it's a really good time because your basil isn't even up yet. So you exactly. can have pesto more than once a year. <laughs> and you can and you and you can mix it in with nettles and and there's you know what you don't want to over harvest the uh, are, nettles are native? Nettles are native. We encourage nettles on on our property as as, as much as we can. I I'm I'm definitely in the sandy prairie oak um, hardwoods and it's not the best habitat for nettle support the nettles as much as i can because we harvest the tops and and we we actually uh, uh, drink a an, an herbal um nutrient nutritive tea throughout the winter um to get our uh, to get our greens that way why do you personally think it's important to take care of the plant world because it's the base of everything what continues to stoke your passion and inspire you toward greater service in the world? I don't know. That's, that's hard. I think I'm constantly finding things that get me excited about what I do. And some of it is when you're out doing field work and you find cool plants. But a lot of it's people, too. Um, I think it's really um, kind of stokes your fire when you meet another person who's just as excited about it as you are, or even who's just getting involved in it, has no idea what they're doing, but is ready to get started. I think that's really um, gets me going and gets me excited. This podcast is called Imaginal Roots, and we really we, we like to explore your roots and your connection, and then also this imaginal potential in this um, cocoon of what could transform. And, what, and, and so if, if we dared to create forward, and, and this is as broad as you want to be, um, if we dared to create forward from what we truly want for our reality and our world, not just based on field of what we don't want, but what would you dare to create forward? I think I'd want to create just a system where there's more opportunities for people to pursue the things that interest them. Because I can't make somebody interested in something. I can try. But I don't think that every single person in the world should be super into plants because that would be boring. I need everybody to be have their own things. Um, so I don't know exactly what we'd need for everybody's own interests. But I think if there are structures set up where if somebody has a, a blooming interest in anything to explore it further hopefully in a way that is free and in a way that is accept accessible, um, I think that that would be really great. If, if we all had enough in our society that we were basically taken care of, that we didn't have to be so concerned about working for a paycheck or working for um, our health, I, I can just imagine the creative creativity and the curiosity that could get explored and what we may be able to pursue or create with our with our lives and and that's one of the things that I'm actually wanting to help steward with common roots rising and and our our community building efforts is um, creating enough support and nurturing in the community to, you know, allow somebody like you to go wander around in nature and, and, and play with plants and just share that or 
um, enjoy a career as a part-time dog groomer. Can you tell me a little bit how how you how did you get into being a dog groomer? Uh, I come from a dog family. We're basically half dog. No. Uh, so my I brought up my dad before and how he is a psychologist. He's his areas of focus in at UWSP were, I mean he's a he's a biopsychologist, but he was also really really into the psychoactive drugs. Um, so he would he did actually research on before he became a professor on um, alcohol and uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, kind of when that stuff was just sort of getting found out, um, he did rat stuff with that. But his other big thing is dogs. He loves training dogs. Um, and so I grew up in that environment. And then one of my sisters was a dog groomer. And then this family friend is a dog groomer. And once I needed my first job when I was 15, I wanted to start saving for college. I'm, I like to be prepared. Um, I approached this family friend for um, a job, and I have been there ever since. <laughs> it's a four-paw pet care in Plover. Um, so I do that. My work with Golden Sands, I work um, four days a week, and then I finish up my week on Fridays uh, grooming dogs. And it's kind of nice having both because the uh, Golden Sands work is very communication-based, it's a lot of talking to people and sending emails and kind of like coordinating things, like setting up projects and thinking about what we should do um, to kind of further our goals. And then I, on Fridays, I just get to go and do straight. It's basically all like, I don't know, like labor kind of. It's not like manual labor because I'm not just carrying things around, but it's my hands know what to do. <laughs> I just have to use the scissors and use the clippers. Um, and I don't have to think so much about what I'm doing. And I can just chat with my coworkers and pet puppies and it's great. So what's the most popular request that the dogs have for you for hairdos right now? Leave them long because it's cold. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's like all the time. It's, um, it tends to be difficult, one of the more difficult things because um, like dog hair gets matted into like, you know, mats, dreadlocks kind of, but not separated out um, if you don't brush your dog. And it, has, it depends on the dog's kind of hair too. But if somebody comes in and they want their dog long and they already have snarls, we're just like, We'll do what we can. No guarantees. So I think it would be, you know, really wonderful if, you know, you wanted to be able to be a part-time dog groomer and, and then also maybe you have an interest in something else and to be able to pursue all interests rather than having to pursue maybe, you know, some things, you know, or, or maybe something that says, well, this particular position is full-time, so I get all these extra benefits with it. Well, what if I could do, like, a whole bunch of things and combine them together and just be taken care of, right? I mean, I think that could be kind of fun. So um, so can you share a, a little bit about um, how we can connect with your work um, at Golden Sands and the Central Wisconsin Invasives Partnership and where we can find that information? Yeah, so Golden Sands does this invasive species stuff. We actually, with our, my focus is these terrestrial invasive species, so plants that are growing on land. We have other people who focus on the water plants. Um, but we do have, like, I guess groups that are in central Wisconsin, one in central Wisconsin and one in northeast Wisconsin for invasive, uh, terrestrial invasive species stuff. And they're called cooperative invasive species management areas. Um, lately, I've been shortening it down to cooperative invasive species group, um, which is what, also what they are. There's a lot of words to describe these kind of groups. So one of them, the one in central Wisconsin is called the Central Wisconsin Invasives Partnership. Um, we shorten it to CWIP. And this serves um, a bunch of counties in central Wisconsin. This is, group is a little more set up. Um, and then the second group is the Northeast Wisconsin Invasives Partnership, 
And that goes from like Green Bay to Wapaka area. Okay, so can you tell me where can we find information? Do you have a website for that, Facebook? Yeah, so for Golden Sands generally, um, Golden Sands has a website, goldensandsrcd.org, and that's a good starting point for both of these things and for everything else that Golden Sands does. Uh, The Central Wisconsin group has a Facebook page and a website. The website is cwipartnership.org. And the Facebook page is Central Wisconsin Invasives Partnership. I didn't say it before. Golden Sands has a Facebook page too. Golden Sands RCD. The Northeast Wisconsin group. Uh, I have not published the website or Facebook yet, um, but if you're interested, you can. We are on the Golden Sands website. It might be a little bit buried. If it's easier, you can message the Golden Sands Facebook page, and we have like contact lists that we can add you to. Yeah, and I understand that you, I just saw you were posted, you are going to be hiring a, I don't know, a partner, co-creator, or just another person that does what you do, but for the Northeastern Wisconsin Partnership, is that correct? Yep, so we'll be hiring somebody to do my job for those Northeast counties. Yeah, so you, and and maybe that that person, you, you'll have somebody to like say, hey, for, this is what's happening over here in Brown County, what's going on in... Portage County, and and um, you'll have a collaborator, right? Yeah, we are expanding, so we'll be able to do more things, and but we'll still collaborate. And there's other cooperative invasive species groups in Wisconsin too that serve different parts of the state, and we always like sure. to keep in touch with each other and see where we can work together. Well, I appreciate you being with us. I'm I'm really I am looking forward to. Um, working with you and talking to you more about about what you do. I do have a personal interest in this because I, I do have my own land um, with a few invasive species, and there's probably more here than I don't even know about. And I'm, I'm interested in um, doing some more with the um, Golden Sands group, too. Um, Rachel, who we did our first interview with, does some work in the agriculture area with Golden Sands. And uh, Hannah, your new executive director, will be on a future podcast um, talking about what her work and, and the general work with um, Golden Sands, too. So um, I, I know a few months back I, I was curious about what was going on and what Golden Sands even was, and I decided to reach out, and I, I really appreciate that you and Hannah have, and, and Rachel have opened my awareness to the conservation work that you guys are doing throughout the central part of the state. So thank you very much, and I look forward to you joining us again. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me on. Imaginal Roots with host Mark Gerke is a podcast from Common Roots Rising. Through engaging conversations with creative leaders, we're exploring our community roots and connections as we imagine transformative new stories and culture into being.